Bridge kids, if there are any bridge kids left, please, uh, you're dismissed. You can go to your class. We're going to be in Acts chapter 9, the rest of us. I'd like you to turn in your Bible, your smart Bible, or your smartphone, or your paper Bible, whatever you have, to Acts chapter 9. We're going to continue our study in the book of Acts. Today, we're, it's about uh, champions of the faith. There are two vignettes of champions, and the story is going to start to uh, change in the book of Acts. In uh, 1973, Chuck Colson became a committed follower of Jesus Christ at the age of 42. Before that time, Colson served as special uh, counsel to President Richard Nixon, where he developed quite a reputation before the Watergate scandal. Now, I know I'm, you know, I'm a history person and I'm quoting history, but this was every day in my 20s, in the 70s, uh, for a period of time where it was all about the Watergate scandal. Um, as special counsel to the president, uh, Colson had many special roles. Colson was responsible for inviting influential private interest groups into the White House policymaking process. He served as political communications liaison with organized labor, veterans, farmers, industry, and citizens groups. He drafted legal briefs on certain issues, reviewed presidential appointments, made suggestions for White House guest lists. Slate Magazine writer David Plotz described Colson as Richard Nixon's hard man, the evil genius of an evil administration. Colson himself later wrote that he was valuable to the president because I was willing to be ruthless in getting things done. Nixon's White House Chief of Staff, H.R. Haldeman, described Colson as the president's hitman. In 1971, Colson authorized a memo listing Nixon's major political opponents. Later, it was known as Nixon's enemies list. It was said that Colson was so adamant about re-electing Nixon for president that Colson would walk over his own grandmother if necessary. In March of 1974, Colson was indicted for conspiracy to cover up the Watergate burglaries that took place in September 1971. The Republican White House had ordered approval of illegally obtaining information from, the Demo- from Democratic headquarters, and the Watergate scandal followed. However... Before Colson was indicted for Watergate, he became a follower of Jesus Christ. And that's going to change everything for history. Chuck Colson decided to plead guilty to obstruction of justice charges, something different than he was originally indicted for, something that he believed he was guilty of. And he served seven months in the Alabama federal prison, and he was the first one in the Watergate scandal to go to prison. When the news media learned of the news that Chuck Colson had converted to Christianity, most were very skeptical. U.S. newspapers, Newsweek magazine, The Village Voice, and Time magazine all ridiculed 
Colson's conversion, claiming that it was a ploy, a spin, to reduce his sentence. But Chuck Colson's life would go on to give proof of his radical conversion to Christ. In 1976, he founded Prison Fellowship, which is today the largest outreach to prisoners, ex-prisoners, and their families. For many years, he hosted a radio program that some of you have heard called Breakpoint. He authored over 30 books, including Born Again, Life Sentence, Loving God, Kingdoms in Conflict, and The Body. He became a world-renowned speaker, speaking on ethics and Christian worldview. And he died in April of 2012. Like Chuck Colson, Saul of Tarsus experienced a radical conversion to Christ. Saul had been an enemy of Christ, seeking to stamp out Christianity. But Saul became a committed follower of Jesus. And this, this is what happened last week. We have a map, of course. Get a map to get us rolling, get everybody engaged. Okay. Saul of, of Tarsus and we didn't learn that until last week that he was from Tarsus. He was persecuting Christians. He was a Jewish Pharisee. He hated Christianity. He thought uh, Christianity was, was a heresy. And so uh, he was persecuting Christians. He applauded when Stephen was stoned to death because he was a Christian in Jerusalem. And he got um, Letters from the high priest in Jerusalem to go to Damascus to see that Christians were arrested. He was very passionate about putting Christians in prison. So he went to Jerusalem on the, on the south, and he's headed to Damascus. And let's see. Um, I had the distance, and it's a few hours. By car. So, um, Saul is going to, on the road to Damascus. He's walking with a group of people, and he's going to have an encounter with Jesus Christ, the risen Lord, and it's going to change everything. And history is going to be changed because of what happened on that road to Damascus. And so, we engage our passage, Acts chapter 9, verses 20 through 31. The first point is a new champion, Saul or Paul. And um, every once in a while, I'm going to get confused, and I'm going to call Saul Paul. But right now, he's called Saul. And it's going to change in Acts 13, verse 9, where Luke just casually says, and Saul was sometimes called Paul. And after that, he's always called Paul. So uh, this is who this is. Man is Saul of Tarsus, and he, he will be known as Paul in the future, but now he is Saul. He's the new evangelist. He's the new champion. And, and this is going to take on, the, in the book of Acts, a whole new direction. And we'll see this unfold. Verses 20 through 22. Uh, at once, he has just come to faith in Christ. He's been in Damascus. He's He's uh, been hanging out with other believers in Jesus in verse 19 for the very first time. He's had real biblical, genuine fellowship where they read the Bible and prayed together and talked about their faith. Verse 20, at once he, Saul, began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. This will become Saul 
Saul's chief strategy, and he does it right here. He's in Damascus. This is, not a, this is not Israel. This is not a Jewish nation. This is a Gentile nation. And he goes into a synagogue. And in a synagogue is where he's going to find like-minded people, people of Jewish faith, people who know the Old Testament scriptures, people who understand the Old Testament scriptures. So he's going to go there. Saul's a Pharisee. Saul is an expert in the Old Testament scriptures. And he's going to go there, and he's going to be able to reason with these people from their scriptures. He has a starting point. And uh, he's going to explain to them who their Messiah is, who the Christ, the anointed one, the promised one of the Old Testament. He's going to explain who he is and that it is Jesus, the one that he had been persecuting. He is the Son of God. That's a, that's a huge change, a radical message for this persecutor of the church. Verse 21, all those who heard him were astonished and asked, isn't the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem among those who call on, on his name, this name? And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners um, to the chief priests? Saul's reputation had preceded him. People knew about this in Damascus that Saul had come there to arrest Christians. And now Saul seems to be one of them. That's crazy. How did this happen? And by the way, they're not used to radical conversion. People who came into the Jewish faith were taught and instructed, and it was a very slow process. You didn't have radical life changes like this. This is major All of them were astonished and asked, isn't this the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem? Verse 22, yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Messiah. So his new ministry gains momentum. He's empowered by the Holy Spirit and the word of God. And he uses his expertise in the Old Testament scriptures. And he explains the Old Testament prophecies about the Messiah. And uh, he's going to stir up. A lot of attention. Verses 23 through 25, the assassination plot. And after many days had gone by, there was a conspiracy among the Jews to kill him. Uh, After many days, we don't know exactly how that long. It's probably over a couple of years that Paul is in this area. And we don't know all the details. Luke just puts things together for us. And Paul is going to give us a little more information in Galatians chapter 1. That while he was in Damascus for a couple of years, he slips over into Arabia. We don't know what he did there. We assumed he probably went in sort of like a desert experience to do some reflection, some prayer and study where he's going to put some of these major theological understanding of who Jesus is. He's going to put them together. Nobody's going to understand the Old Testament like Paul, like Saul is in putting this together. And so... um, After many days had gone by, there was a conspiracy among the Jews to kill him. The Jews, the Jewish people in Damascus, were furious with Paul. He's become a traitor to the the Jewish faith. We can't have this guy going around uh, preaching a heresy about Jesus. Verse 24, but Saul learned of their plan. Day and night they kept close watch on the city gates in order to kill him. But his followers took him by night, lowered him in a basket through an opening in the wall. You see, Saul's ministry had had an impact. And there are people now who have come to faith in Christ because of him. 
other believers in Christ, and he is staying with other believers. And apparently somebody who is a believer lives in a house on the wall of the city. It wasn't uncommon to have homes built on the walls. And Saul gets an escape route. He's lowered in a basket through an opening wall. So here's Saul of Tarsus. He comes in Damascus, if you remember. He'd gone there because he wanted to arrest Christians and throw them in jail. But he was blinded on the road to Damascus. They had to lead him into Damascus, and he was blind and totally helpless. You know, he just has to go into Damascus. And then now he, he's leaving in a basket. Not a very exciting uh, way to enter and to exit. Not, uh, not prestigious. He doesn't seem very heroic. Verse 26 doubting disciples when they came to Jerusalem. So this is uh, five hours and 13 minutes by car, 206-mile walk. When they came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he really was a disciple. So Saul heads south to Jerusalem. Let's look at that on the map. Do we have one right here? Yeah. So Saul is in Damascus. He's going to head south to Jerusalem. That's where he came from earlier. Now he's going back. He gets to Jerusalem. Nobody wants him. Nobody knows what to think of him. He, he used to be a Jewish leader. He was a hero there. And the Christians were afraid of him. Now he's become a Christian. He has no friends who are Pharisees or a part of the Jewish faith. And the Christians are scared to death of him. Is this a ploy? Is he going to turn on them? Is he going to have them arrested if they befriend him or let him into the to his secret meeting? And uh, they don't know what to do. The New Advocate, verses 27 through 28. But Barnabas, who's Barnabas? Where did he come from? Well, we were introduced to him back in Acts chapter 4. We had that passage? So this is Luke's style. He just throws in a little bit of information. He introduces you to a character, and then he leaves them. For a few chapters. And then he comes back. Because this is an important player. Joseph. That was Barnabas's name. A Levite from Cyprus. We learned that. He's a Jewish man. He's from the island of Cyprus. He doesn't live in Israel. Whom the apostles called Barnabas. Which means son of encouragement. There was something about Barnabas. That the disciples saw him as a son of encouragement. And so he got this name Barnabas. He's an encourager. Probably has gift of encouragement. He's one of those guys that he looks at somebody and he sees their best just right off the bat. He's, you know, positive. He's highly relational. He sees the potential in people. And he sees the potential in Saul right off the bat. So uh, Barnabas sold the field he owned and brought it, the money, and put it at the apostles' feet. This is early. It just says Barnabas has become Christian. Barnabas is generous. He's, he's giving to support the work. And now he just shows up. Out of, in the dark, in Acts chapter 9, Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. He told them how Saul on his journey had seen the Lord Jesus and the Lord had spoken to him and how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. So Barnabas is going to tell the whole story. We don't know how Barnabas knew the story. Somehow he's had some interaction with Saul and he knows, this, he trusts, he believes um, Saul's story and he's heard some things about it, likely um, those rumors in Damascus that Saul of Tarsus had become a Christian are true. And here he is. 
And, and so Barnabas explains the whole story to the apostles. And we know from Galatians 1, it's Peter and James. Probably not all of the apostles, but it's Peter and James. And they may be the most important ones. And, and Barnabas shared with them about Saul's passion to share the good news of Jesus Christ. Verse 28, so Saul stayed with them and moved about freely in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. So Saul is going to be accepted in Jerusalem on the basis of Barnabas. Barnabas uh, goes to bat for him. He's, he's uh, the go-between. He's an ambassador for Saul. He's an ambassador for Jesus. And Saul has now the freedom to move around in Jerusalem and to speak boldly. That's just the nature of Saul. He wants, he, he's got this now. He's been against Jesus. He's very passionate about serving God. And now he understands that Jesus is exactly who he says. And he's just going to be all in. He's going to be 100%. He's not going to waste his life. The second assassination plot, verses 29 through 30, because that kind of lifestyle gets you in trouble. He talked and debated with the Hellenistic Jews, but they tried to kill him. Okay, he's in Jerusalem. He's interacting with a Hellenistic Jew. In fact, Saul is a Hellenistic Jew. Saul is from Tarsus. A Hellenistic Jew is somebody outside of Israel who, were, who are living in a Gentile country, and they speak Greek. They probably speak Hebrew too, but they speak Greek. They're Greek-speaking Jews. The really important Jewish people think you only speak Hebrew and you live in Israel. And so there was a little tension between Hebraic Jews and Hellenistic Jews. Stephen was a Hellenistic Jew, and he was put to death. Paul, Saul, has got the same reputation here. He's stirring up trouble among the Hellenistic Jews. He talked and debated with the Hellenistic Jews, but they tried to kill him. Verse 30, when the believers learned this, they took him down to Caesarea and sent him off to a Tarsus. It sounds like a map. Saul needs to be rescued by his friends. We have a map. So he's been in Damascus, then he came down to Jerusalem. Now he's got to go to Caesarea. The believers are going to take him to Caesarea. That's 77 miles. And he's going to go to Tarsus. Tarsus is his hometown at the top of the mount. That's 564 miles. They're getting him out of town. He's going to die if he doesn't slow down here. Um, and so they remove him from the scene. And, and they took him to Caesarea, and he's off to Tarsus. And he's going to be there a while, quite a few years, in fact. And Saul is going to slip out of the picture. He's coming back. When he comes back, he's going to be the chief player for the rest of the book. But right now, he's a young gun. He's, he's, uh, he's very passionate. He's a young leader. And he's probably got to be schooled a little bit more. But um, we're going to take a break because we've got another leader we have to look at. Progress report, verse 31. Then the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria 
enjoyed a time of peace and was strengthened, living in the fear of the Lord and encouraged by the Holy Spirit, it increased in its number. A couple things here. Notice this. Then the church, one church, he's talking about the church, the body of Christ, the whole body of Christ on earth. Not churches right now. He's not talking about local churches. He's talking about big church. Throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria. Three provinces, but one church. And it's moving. It's expanding. It's growing. People are coming to faith in Jesus Christ. Believers are being encouraged. This is Luke's progress report. There are several in the book of Acts. And this is just a little update here. This is how it's going. Jesus said, I want you to be my witnesses. I want you to be my witness in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. You know what? The apostle Paul, Saul of Tarsus, got that. He would be a witness. He would tell people who Jesus is and what Jesus had done for him. So, of course, the map... Uh, Judea, roughly, Samaria, roughly, Galilee, roughly, the whole area around the Sea of Galilee. And that's uh, most of the land of Israel in those days. And the gospel is spreading exactly what Jesus had in mind. The church is growing. So Saul of Tarsus emerges as an influential leader. He will become a champion of the faith by Acts 13. Now we see the seasoned champion, verses 32 through 43, and it's Peter. So these are the big guns. Peter is the leader in the first part of Acts. Paul will become the leader in the last part of Acts. Is that me making that noise? Uh, So the seasoned champion is Peter. The ministry on the move, verse 32, as Peter traveled about the country, traveling ministry, he went to visit the Lord's people who lived in Lydda. We didn't even know there were the Lord's people there. There's a church there already. Well, where's Lydda? Thanks for asking. We've got to see it on a map. So you see uh, Judea and Jerusalem right there. Lydda is toward the coast. Um, it, in the Old Testament, it was the city of Lod. Um, so that's just where Peter is. He, he went to visit the Lord's people. And this is where these, this event takes place. Verses 33 through 35, the healing of the paralyzed man. Then he found a man named Aeneas who was paralyzed and who had been bedridden for eight years. Aeneas, Peter said to him, Jesus Christ heals you. Get up and roll up your mat, your mat. Um, now, we don't have a lot of detail. We don't know what the backstory is here, how uh, Peter got connected. We know he's here. And so Peter has this opportunity. Jesus heals you. It's not about Peter healing you. It's about Jesus. And Peter is an apostle with the authority directly from Jesus Christ. Immediately, Aeneas got up. That's it. Miracle. Aeneas is healed. And Jesus performs a miracle 
Verse 35, all those who lived in Lydda and Sharon, uh uh-oh, a new place, saw him and turned to the Lord. This had a huge impact in this whole geographical area. Um, Miracles or signs had a purpose to authenticate the message. So the miracles authenticate the message and the messenger. They were attention getters. It's like, wake up, people. God is doing something here. It's exactly what happened. People paid attention to what Peter had to say, who Jesus is and what he had done for them. And uh, those who lived in Lydda and Sharon saw him and turned to the Lord. That's conversion. They turned to the Lord. They came to faith in Jesus Christ. Their lives were changed. Should I switch? Hello? All right. Thank you. Oh, let's have a map. That's appropriate. You map people are just this. We got your attention. But all I wanted you to see is we saw where Lydda is. And we see Caesarea, that's where Saul of Tarsus had, was headed. Peter has been at the south in Lydda. And the plain of Sharon is 50 miles long and 10 miles wide. It's a plain. And when you come back in, there would be mount, a mountainous region. And uh, a lot of people live in this area. And uh, the gospel is, being, uh, tr- is transforming people in that area. Verses 36 through 41, the resurrection of the dead woman. Verse 36, in Joppa, I can see a map coming on this one, there was a disciple named Tabitha. In the Greek, her name was Dorcas. I like Tabitha better. She was always doing good and helping the poor. She was a believer. She lived in Joppa, the coastal city of Israel. She had an amazing reputation as a servant of Jesus. She especially loved to serve the poor and the under-resourced. Verse 37, about that time she became sick and died, and her body was washed and placed in an upstairs room. She died, and she was prepared for burial. Verse 38, Lydda was near Joppa. So when the disciples heard that Peter was in Lydda, they sent two men to him and urged him, please come at once. Should we see a map on that? We, we don't have the map for Joppa. Okay. I must have made a mistake. Verse 39. Peter went with them, and when he arrived, he was taken upstairs to the room And all the widows stood around him, crying and showing him the robes and other clothing that Dorcas had made while she was with them. So probably these widows are people that Dorcas has helped. The poor. People who didn't have financial resources. And Dorcas had made clothing for these people. And she's got quite a support group of people who care about her because of the love that she expressed. 
Peter sent them all out of the room. Then he got down on his knees and prayed. You know, we don't know why he sent them out of the room. We do know that this is exactly what Jesus did when he raised Jairus' daughter from the dead. Peter had been there. And perhaps Peter just needs to focus and to pray uh, with sending the people out. Turning toward the dead woman, he said, Tabitha, get up. She opened her eyes and seeing Peter, she sat up. He took her by the hand and helped her to her feet. Then he called for the believers, especially the widows, and presented her to them alive. Peter, speaking with the authority of Christ, speaks life into Tabitha or Dorcas. This is a huge miracle. This is not normal. It's not even a normal miracle, raising somebody from the dead. Jesus did it at least three times. And Peter's not going to do it again, but he did it here. And it was a huge miracle, and it authenticates the message and the messenger, and that has people's attention. God is here. God is up to something. And by the way, God can do miracles whenever he wants, but it's not normative. It's rare, and it is special when he does miracles on this order. If you study the Bible, you'll find there will be years and years, sometimes hundreds of years, and there are no miracles. Does that mean God is not faithful? Does that mean God isn't answering prayer? Does that mean that somehow sometimes people are more spiritual than other times? I think mostly it's just a God thing. When he moves in his plan, he does huge things. I'm not surprised that I've never seen someone raised from the dead. I could, but I'm not surprised. But I think as it gets closer to when Jesus comes back a second time, I think there's going to be some amazing miracles happen that we won't be able to explain or to say, well, this is what really happened. It will just be a total God thing. And God will be getting attention to what he's about to do and uh, what he plans to do. So verse 42 and 43, the church continues to grow. This became known all over Joppa, and many people believed in the Lord. The church just keeps thriving and expanding no matter what the obstacles. Many people believed. The church continued to expand. Peter stayed in Joppa. This is where we're going to leave it. Peter stayed in Joppa for some time with a tanner named Simon. You know by now when Luke mentions something like that, it's probably something we should look at. And it's not a very important detail about where Peter stays. We don't care where Peter stays. But he's staying with a tanner. He is in Israel. Tanners deal with dead animals every day. Dead animals are ceremonially unclean. Anybody who would work with dead animals every day will always be ceremonially unclean. And so he would have been an outsider for the Jewish faith. Peter is willing to stay with this man. And I don't know what that means because Peter's background would know this is not a good place. But it seems that God is opening Peter's heart 
because we're going to see big change in Peter in Acts chapter 10. Some lessons very quickly. Number one, some, com- some committed Christ followers are more concerned with the proclamation of the gospel than their own personal comfort and safety. What do you think about that? Some Christ followers are more concerned about the gospel than their own personal safety and comfort. Saul of Tarsus. He didn't care. He was willing to lay it all down so that Christ could be honored, Christ's name proclaimed. He understood Jesus' heart. He understood that the gospel is a message of eternal life or eternal death. Sometimes we just think it's a nice thing, nice story. It's just our religion. No, it's life or death. Secondly, some Christ followers are more concerned about their own personal comfort and safety than they are the proclamation of the gospel. If they do not feel comfortable, they do not care enough about the gospel. If they do not feel safe, they do not care about the gospel. If it proves to be an inconvenience, they're not that concerned about the gospel. And so, um, what do you think? How, How would you describe your perspective and your desire to make the gospel known to our world? I don't know that I always have an easy answer for myself. Thirdly, some people become very angry with Christ's followers who joyfully share the good news of Christ. People became quite angry with Saul of Tarsus. And it wasn't because he wasn't skilled in communicating to the audience that he was communicating with. They were just angry at the gospel. They thought it was inappropriate and wrong. And all I want to say is please don't be surprised when people are angry at God's message. Number four, God is honored when people trust him with the impossible. Do you trust God with impossible things? And it was impossible to raise Dorcas from the dead. And I don't expect God to raise people from the dead. He can if he wants to, anytime he wants to. But I do believe God wants me to trust him for impossible things. God is honored when people trust him with the impossible. Uh, Luke one thirty seven. Um, I think this is a poor translation. For no word from God will ever fail. I believe that. That's exactly true. But I like the old NIV that says, for nothing is impossible with God. And that's what Gabriel told the Virgin Mary when, when Gabriel told Mary she was going to have a baby as a virgin. Nothing is impossible with God. In Luke 18, 27, Jesus replied, what is impossible with man is possible with God. Many things are impossible for us. Nothing is impossible for God, except he is never going to go against his character. So he's not going to do evil. He's not going to lie. He's not going to deceive. And then uh, 
Luke, excuse me, Hebrews 11, 6. And without faith, it's impossible to please God. And I just want to remind us, what are you trusting God for? Are you trusting God for big things? Are you trusting God for an impossible thing? Without faith, it's impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. What do you need to trust God for today? You need to trust God for your future. You need, is there something in your, in your family that you need to trust God for? You need to trust God with your health. Some health issue that's really important. Health of your family. Is there something in your friendships you need to ask God for? You need to trust him. You need to depend on him. You need him to work. What about your finances? You need to depend on God for your finances, for his provision, for your life, or your job. Is there something you should be praying about your job and trusting him for or just letting it happen? Your future, your education, maybe who you're going to marry, who you should be dating. What will you trust God for? Today we're going to worship God with the time of communion. And um, we do that the first, of, first Sunday of every month. It's a time that Jesus has instructed his church to take the time to remember him. Because we get busy and a lot of things are important in our life. And we sometimes just forget. And he says, I want you to remember me. So we take the bread and we take the cup to remember what Jesus did for us. To say, thank you, God. The bread is a symbol of his body that he sacrificed for us. The cup is a symbol of his blood. It's a reminder. It's to cause us to think and remember back. He gave his life so that we could have life. He died on the cross. He experienced death so that we do not have to experience eternal death. He exchanged his life. He gave all. And you know what he really desires? Is all back. That you choose to present your body as a living sacrifice. Romans 12.1 let's, uh, let's pray. And I want to thank God. And I want to invite those who are going to serve communion to please come and join me. But let's pray and thank God. For Jesus. Father, I want to uh, thank you right now for Jesus Christ. Thank you for how um, the, resurrec- the resurrected Jesus led the church in the book of Acts. And it was through his power and his message that the gospel spread and the church grew and miracles happened. God, today I want to thank you for our salvation, the salvation that was purchased through Jesus Christ and his death on the cross. Thank you that Jesus died for me. I thank you that Jesus died for every person in this room and that when he did, he paid for our sin penalty and it's paid for. And what you've left up to us is to choose or not to place our faith in Jesus Christ and to trust him salvation, to trust that his death was a payment for our sin. 
We say thank you, Jesus, for dying for us. And so this morning as we come, we're thankful, God, for the bread, and we're thankful for the cup. We respond with love. We respond with service. We respond with sacrifice. We respond with worship. Thank you for the bread, and thank you for the cup. In Jesus' name, amen. So the way we do communion at the bridge is everybody is invited. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, we invite you. Um, All you need to do is come forward and take the bread and take the cup and go back to your seat, and you can partake whenever you are ready. Jesus, who he is and what he's done for you. Let's be ambassadors for Christ. God bless you all. Thanks for being here. We're dismissed. Stumble out and